Isn't it doing it? Okay, is it going? Okay, it's going. <laughs> okay. It's just this. I'm running out of pages on this yellow <laughs> screen, so I got to move on. Hey, when they have Costco cake, I got to have one. <laughs> yeah. Or any cake. Yeah. I'm really a pie guy. I am too. I yeah, you too. So Although cheesecake. Brownie. I'm good. I don't complain much when food shows up in front of me. <laughs> One of the saddest times in my marriage, we were married about a month, and we had moved to St. Louis to go to seminary, and it was about 104. 98% humidity. We were in this crummy little apartment. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. I had a 78 Toyota truck that I was constantly having to work on. I'm underneath it working. I come in for dinner. What does my wife make for dinner? Broccoli soup. Oh. Mm. And I go, is it a little warm for that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, enjoy. Yeah, that was not good. <laughs> a whole lot more frigid in here. I was trying to cool things off. All right? Instead, I heated them up. All right. Oh, I have to read you these. Jack Benny. Okay. So you have to be a certain age. We know him. But Jack we Benny. We saw him. We used to, I mean... Cheap jokes actually used to be popular. I don't know that you hear cheap jokes. That's probably Depression era, right? He really wasn't a cheapskate either. I mean, no, he wasn't. Bob Hope has some great stuff on him. Jack Benny was actually a pretty neat guy. But the joke was, it was a stick. It was a shtick he had. That he was so tight, you know. And I, I actually joke about it. You know, I'm so tight, I squeak when I walk, you know. And actually, Bob can attest to this, because we, we work, Bob is kind of faithful volunteer for me. When I need a hand, I go, Bob, are you free? And most of the times he is. Yeah, Phil? You may remember that one of the quotes attributed to Jack to his program most was when this, uh, he was being robbed at gunpoint. And the guy said, come on, your money or your life? Yeah. He said, I'm thinking. Yeah, wait, wait, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably the most famous Jack Benny line. But anyway, Phil, Phil, you just had to add that in so that I couldn't read it here. Now I have to throw this away. <laughs> no, they're good. Teasing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, but I can attest to this because I, I am pretty pretty cheap. Now that Louise Lee has, has gone to glory, I can tell you this cool story. We About several years ago, we were walking in the basement of the high school, and I was still doing the headmaster thing over there. And I'm kind of talking about what we hope to do as the school grew and so forth. And so at, at the end, she goes, we're kind of done. It's all, and it's all just not finished. I mean, if any of you ever saw it, there was nothing down there. It was just a few stem walls, or not stem walls, uh, supporting walls. And she stops me, and she goes, well, this is just wrong. She said, do you, do you need some money? <laughs> I go, I go, yeah, Louise, I can use some money. She said, well, how much do you think it'll cost to finish this? I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, how about $100,000? It was awesome. And I said to her, okay, and I was, yeah, I'm Lutheran, so I don't say these things very often, but I felt very burdened by, by God to say to her, we're going to finish this basement for $100,000. Now, that was a really stupid thing for me to say um, because there is no way. You can't do it. It's 8,000 square feet. 
And you know, just normal. That should have cost about $500,000 to finish and furnish. And, and we finished that. Bob did a bunch of this work with me. We're in there tiling the bathroom and hanging sheetrock. But a number of you did. Actually, Ross got injured in there, <laughs> helping us finish that off. We, did, we added a classroom to finish, too. We finished Sandra's classroom. We weren't going to do that originally. And we did it for $106,000. I'm not kidding. He multiplied your money. No kidding. So I, in fact, we got a movie coming out because our lender, uh, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, interviewed us and I think two other schools in the uh, churches schools in the in the <laughs> denomination because they they we we report to them all the time they require us to report because the things we planned and have asked for are so aggressive and so kind of outside of the box <laughs> that they're constantly saying you must report to us <laughs> and so we keep reporting to them enrollment and giving and and stuff like that and they keep going how are you doing this <laughs> you know and so they came out spent two days here uh, recording, video, in, interviewing. And th so they interviewed me, and, and they kind of like, how, how is this happening? I said, well, I said, there's two things I love to tell people. And I said, I've been around long enough, raised enough money that I think people know I'm not like 25. And I've kind of, you know, I've done this for a while. But I said, I can tell people this. If you give us a gift, it will go for what you tell me it's going for. I absolutely can guarantee it will go for that thing. And then I say... And we will make your one, for every dollar you give, we're going to make it to $3 worth of work. So that's the goal. So if you give, I'm just telling you, that's our goal. Whether we, whether we do it all the time, but God has been faithful um, to be able to do that. Like, so I was visiting a church. They added a gym, which was in between the size of this gym and the, that one over there, in between, and uh, five classrooms. Five classrooms, $8 million dollars. Eight million dollars. I said, I said to him, could I have half of that? I mean, that over there, we built and furnished and all of it, everything, put everything in there for half of that, and it was twice as big, twice as much square feet as built. Isn't that stunning? I said, this is a crime. I said, I said, I know I don't live in your area. Please, you could call me. <laughs> I mean, really. And then he said, I said, how come you don't have a kitchen? They go, oh well, it would have cost eight hundred thousand dollars. You know what we did our high school kitchen for down there? Now you got to know. Bob even knows this because we were on auction sites. Bob's sending me links on him. Hey, how about this stainless steel table? How about this dishwasher in the corner? Anyway, we did that whole that whole kitchen for twenty five thousand dollars. Wow. Now it doesn't have commercial hood. It doesn't have commercial. I mean, it's not commercial. But I'm not kidding. It has, you should see it sometime. Go down there. I mean, it's a real kitchen. But a church donated us a fridge. That I put a thermostat in myself. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but it worked, you know, um, and so forth, you know. So it's I, that, I, that I feel, I think, and whenever I talk about finances, that's the thing I am so grateful for. Because people, I find, are generous when they know it's going to do what they, you asked them to do. And it's going to work hard for them. We're not going to waste any of it. I mean, instead of wasting, we're doing the opposite. Okay, so here you go. Here, i got to tell you these jokes because we're talking about giving and being generous today. When Jack Benny has a party, you not only bring your own scotch, you bring your own rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Depression, a period in which you have no belt to tighten. <laughs> so my parents would have said, yeah. Yeah.
He was asked, Jack Benny was asked to throw out the first ball at a World Series game, but he looked at the ball and instead of throwing it out, he put it in his pocket and sat it down. <laughs> oh, he was also, uh, Jack Benny was the, uh, was the chairman of March of Dimes, honorary chairman. Fred Allen said, that I know I'm old enough to remember Fred Allen too. Yeah. The dime hasn't been minted that could march past Jack Benny. <laughs> <laughs> George Burns said this one. He once gave his wife a coupon for a year's subscription to a magazine as a gift. All she had to do was fill it out and send in the check. <laughs> <laughs> ben Crosby had his, he did a golf tournament, you know, Pebble Beach. And, and there was, they were out at, they were playing golf or whatever on Pebble Beach, which is by the ocean. And a mm -hmm. scuba diver came up out of the way and goes, that's Jack Benny. He's always out there on bad days looking for golf balls. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> the Jack Benny I knew threw his money around. Not far, but he threw it. <laughs> oh, gosh. He's so chintzy he can call his every dollar by his first name. <laughs> he was so cheap for his last... Oh, no, I got a few. He was so cheap that when Mary asked for diamonds for her birthday, he bought her two of them, the eight and the queen. <laughs> <laughs> Jack was so cheap, instead of bringing his date flowers, he brought her seeds. <laughs> <laughs> he breathed. He breathed through his nose to keep from wearing out his teeth. <laughs> I had, I, I didn't, I, uh, it's tighter than frog skin, and that's watertight. <laughs> the reason Jack Betty's looking so sad these days is he's not only losing a daughter, he's losing a deduction. Too. <laughs> um, oh, he's the only man I ever knew who had rubber pockets so he could steal soup. Oh, this is good. He took me to McDonald's, backed his car through the drive through window so the cashier would be on my side. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Okay. I, I, I repeated this one. Did you get this one? Everyone have this copy. It's front and back, so there's a little map on the one side. And actually, Stefan Bundy has clued me into a really neat website that I, if you ask me, I'll send you the link to it. And I'm hoping I can find this. It will wake up for me because I'm going to get this map up here and then there's a whole series of Old Testament, New Testament. It's exhaustive. It's really well done. So I'm grateful, Stefan, for you uh, directing us to that. Let's see if I if it held on for me. Me and technology have not been getting along very well lately. Obviously. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I want you to have this out. Let's look at the... Uh, we're looking at this timeline here and the map just so that we know where we're starting. And then we're going to look at these theological correctives because this gets to the heart of the matter and this will set the context for what will happen as it comes along. So on the timeline one, you know, remember, so Damascus... Three years uh, in Arabia, back to Damascus, he escapes, an assassination attempt, heads to Jerusalem, causes too much of a stir. Even there, the disciples are wary of him. Um, he's only there for a matter of days or maybe weeks, if anything. A couple, no, actually it is, it says two weeks, that's right. And then he is, and then his compatriots, the Grecian Jews, the Hellenized Jews, try to assassinate him. That's the second then assassination attempt. And then, um, and then um, Barnabas came to his rescue, kind of testifying on him. And then five years now, he's in Tarsus. We believe, and, and it makes sense, 
because in the Acts 11 passage where we're going to go to here next, so you need to have your Bible up, we're going to go to the next time that he's mentioned, which is Acts, Acts 11 or Acts 13. I think it's Acts 11. We're going to look at that little note. I'll tell you what, if you have one of these Bibles, I'm going to make copies of something out of this for you. This is the Concordia Self-Study Bible in the NIV. This is my favorite Bible ever made. I, and if you ever want one, I order them. They're tricky to find anymore because Concordia doesn't publish them anymore. It's a funny story. Our publishing house made a deal with Zondervan for the NIV. And then, um, and then it, it ran out and we, we went in on the ESV. So now we don't produce these anymore. But the guy, the, the professor, seminary professors who did the notes for this were so good, so good. The ESV is, is very, a very fine, fine work, the Lutheran Study Bible. But this has tools in it, this timeline of Paul's life. I'm going to put that together for you and make, put that in your hand. I just think it's so helpful. It's convoluted for us. But again, it'll help give us insight into, into um, which of the things, why is this not working? I had it up. We'll just see if I we'll see if I can make it work. Um, it's doing something. Hooray! I don't know. It's Who knows what? Okay, so at chapter eleven, then. So now Paul is in Tarsus, his hometown. Uh, Roman. He's a Roman citizen. His parents were citizens. Very devout Jews. They sent. Well, let's see if it will do that. Do we think we'll get lucky? Yes. Restore. <coughs> Bible maps. 118, JPEG. Yay! Look at that. So this is kind of neat. This is a really, really well done piece. So here's Paul's hometown, right? Let me see if I can make it fit here. Yeah, good enough. All right, so you can see this, and we can give you this link. Just email me, and I'll send you that link. You you can email Stephanie if you want. (laughs) Anyway. Where's one? Well, anyway. Okay, two. Paul has a vision of Jesus and, and uh, converts. Okay. Paul baptized. He's in Damascus. Flees to Arabia. Many folks say here, remember I speculated that he might have gone as far south as Mount Sinai, had visions and so forth that are reflected in other writings. And then he returns, and then it has this returning to his hometown of Tarsus. They miss a spot here. I mean, you have it on your, on your notes. But now we're up here at Tarsus, and then the next event is he's going to be in Antioch. I'm going to give you a little background on Antioch, too. Let's see if we can find this next. Well, look at chapter 11. So in the interlude, Peter, uh, Peter now takes a center stage in the book of Acts, and Peter has this vision of uh, he goes to the home of a Gentile, a Roman, um, Caesarea, and uh, actually he's in the home of a Jewish man, a tanner, which again, Christians are always hanging out with the grossest people. Ooh, I mean, yeah. they're just always hanging out with these gross people. Smell. Tanners were the gross people of the town. You put them downwind, yes. you know, you located their, where the prevailing winds, and I'll tell you what, there was a lot of swearing going on when the wind shifted because <laughs> it was just gross. But they were such a vital piece of what it was. And actually, Paul has a neat connection with a tanner because he's a tent maker. And so, you know, lots of animal hides as well as cloth, you know, kind of tents. And so Paul, it appears, in these five years in Tarsus, learns his trade. Is kind of what we get. He moves from being student, right? He was like a professional student. 
He studied with Gamaliel. He's in the courts of Jerusalem. He was a zealot. I mean, he was zealot. He was passionate. He just was a professional student. You know, he's that guy who just gets into arguments with you in the bar. I mean, and <laughs> picks fights. I mean, over philosophical issues and the truth and all of that. And so then he has this conversion experience, heads to Tarsus, and we think he learns his trade there. We also believe he probably dealt with all kinds of family, family challenges because his parents were quite devout. We have hints that say he may have been engaged or married, even, possibly. I think that's not likely. My guess is, as a good Jewish man, it was your duty. It was your duty to get married. I mean, the single life was deeply frowned upon. Deeply. I mean, and for women, it was the way you had safety and you had provision and so forth. But for men, it was Jewish. I mean, you could not. In fact, that Jesus is a rabbi at age 30 and not married is highly unusual. Highly unusual. And, it, and yet, and this is why in later books, Gnostic Gospels and so forth, and Dan Brown, you know, from the Da Vinci Code, loves to talk about, well, Jesus, of course, was married. And he had a secret wife, and he had to be, and blah, blah, blah. No, it doesn't. It's Jesus. <laughs> I mean, think about it. What a convoluted mess that would be. You know, what is she, the queen of the church? You know, does is the, any of her kids, or what are they, half God? Are they demigods? I mean, what's the deal? I mean, call, talk about it. So obviously, the incarnate Son of God is not going to uh, confuse uh, the issue or the church in that way. And yet, and yet, 300 years later, the church wildly speculates about that. So we guess that Paul had deep family connections there, certainly his mother and father, but childhood friends, probably someone very close who they may have talked about an arranged marriage. That was like 100%. By the time he's about 19 or 20, his parents were getting this figured out so that he is married uh, in his early 20s and producing children. And uh, so that, there, there are, now again, I tell you that partly because when you read Paul's letters later, there are hints, and it gives you some context about what, how he talks about husbands and wives and about caring for one another in the body of Christ. It gives you some context. So after five years, we also are suspicious that he, um, that he follows, excuse me, one second, follows God's command, which says you will be the apostle to the Gentiles. We believe he is reaching out with the gospel. Remember, he's had some, some fermenting, some maturing, because he spent those three years in Arabia, has had several experiences, and two assassination attempts. We think Paul is being matured and shaped. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, is the evidence that is believed that he might be married based on those scriptures you just referred to? I mean, where I've never actually even heard that, you know, that there was speculation that Paul was married. Oh, yeah. There's lots of commentaries that just wonder. I, don't, I know of very few reputable ones that say Paul was married. What we say is this. It would have been expect, expected. His family would have been aggressive in seeking it happen. If he had any aspirations to be rabbi, remember he's essentially at seminary when he's studying Gamaliel. The expectation is that he would have to be married unless there was some physical or some other thing. That, that, that was allowed for in the Torah. If you were not able to produce children, if there was a physical challenge, because again, be fruitful, multiply, it's big command, Old Testament. Um, and so we say there's all kinds of hints that make sense that he would have been engaged in that process, but no, we don't have, no. Nothing, nothing specific <coughs> that way. But it makes perfect sense. 
Um, and when you know that, then reading it. I, if I had to suspect, my guess is that Paul was this kind of guy. He was so passionate that, that his, uh, those relationships with women came second. That he went off, and, and I've known guys like that at grad school. I mean, you know, they're just so in, you know, they're just focused. And I'm like, heck, I want to get married. <coughs> you know, I want to have kids. That's my guess. So it certainly would be a topic of conversation. And you, I, here's how you, you want to know how I really think it is. Every time he comes home, his mother is going, Saul. <laughs> you know, she's coming over. Esther's coming over. <laughs> you know, or whatever. It's time. It's time. Come on. So, but in the meantime, five years in that setting, and and you gotta imagine that his family is not, does not receive this well. We have no notes of that. Nothing like James, the brother of Jesus, who fought against. You know, who was opposed to the church. Remember, he's in the group that he wasn't one of the twelve. He's Jesus' brother, half brother. <coughs> who came with Jesus, it says Jesus' mother and brothers came to him and essentially said, come home, you're embarrassing the family. And that's when Jesus says, who's my mother and brothers? Right? That's a challenge, you know, in our age. I mean, it's interesting, if you read the Red Letter Challenge, he talked, he uses one of the sections says, to hate your family, if it's in the way of me. Right? I mean, that's really what he's saying. That's the, that's the underline. Right? God, Jesus doesn't want you to hate your family. He wants you to love it. Right? It's almost like, it's almost like the passage that says God hates divorce. Because I get asked about that a lot. Especially when people are going through marital distress. And it's not to let people off the hook. It's for me to say, I think God loves marriage. And so it's that kind of thing. Hate your mother or brothers. He's not saying hate your mother or brothers. He's saying, I love Who's got to be in first place? Okay. So in chapter 10 and 11, we have, he's at diversion to Peter. You know, he, now um, those dietary laws are changed. By the way, this is important to note because of how the story progresses. These conversations are happening. The, the Christian church is not monolithic or rigid in its way. Peter is, this is a big deal. It opens the door to how Jewish do you have to be to be a follower of the Messiah? Right? It opens the door. Peter is the one who comes along and essentially he's the one that breaks the ice. Not Paul. Who says, hey, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The whole, you know, God showed me this in a vision. How can we deny that they too can be believers? They aren't Jewish. Peter's the one that breaks that ice. And then Peter explains his actions in chapter 11. Um, look at, and he says, verse 15, chapter 11. As I began, you know, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, these Gentiles, as he had come on us at the beginning. Pentecost, he's talking about. Pentecost Sunday. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look, red letters. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections. And praise God, saying... So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. I love that line. When they heard this, they had no further objectives. And praise God. I wish our denomination, when it met in convention, could do that. You know, when somebody says, here, look, this is what God's doing. I wish I could just go, woohoo. 
but we find a hundred reasons to get mad and disagree, seems like. So now, the church is in Antioch. This sets the stage in chapter 11, <coughs> verses 19 and following. So there's a scattering from this massive persecution that's happening in the church. And so they're, they're scattered, those that are followers of the way. So they're in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, so northern Africa, uh, south Turkey, uh, and the island of Cyprus, telling the message to Jews at first. But then... Verse 20, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. So now, here's the thing. Let me give you this little setting. So Paul has gone, escaped from Caesarea, went to Tarsus five years, heads to Antioch. By the way, these are great maps, Stephen. Thank you again. The Syrian gates is mentioned in the Bible, but the Cilician gates are mentioned several times. That was simply how you had to go to get to the interior. And that's where Galatia is. So we get the book of Galatians, the first New Testament writing for us. So this now they're in Antioch. And look at how it describes Antioch. Um, and began to speak to Greeks also, also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So Antioch becomes this uh, missionary outpost. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. And there's two things to check out, right? I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. There always, is, there always is a double-edged piece to this. Do you remember uh, in one of Paul's missionary journeys, I think it's the second one, when he, the Bereans, do you remember that church, that group of believers? And the Bereans, it says, were more noble than the other people because they heard Paul's presentation on Jesus as the Messiah and they essentially received it well and then they said okay you go now we're gonna check this out and they searched the scriptures and came back to Paul and said thank you you're right I mean it was and it says they were more noble they didn't just come to an emotional decision or it feels right they did their due diligence and so uh, that's what's happening here. This is a mark of the early church. <coughs> they do their due diligence. They study it. So that folks coming up from Jerusalem do have a double edge to this. One is, are these guys on the up and up? Are they playing, are they playing by the rules God would have us follow? <coughs> but they're also longing to see the expansion of the gospel because Jesus himself had said, you will be my witnesses. The gospel is going to go into all the world, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so Antioch is a piece of the ends of the earth. And so how the gospel is spread. So there's, in the early church, there's this wonderful balance between we want to be faithful, but boy, we want to welcome people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as we were welcomed. It's a very cool model because it's not either or. Sometimes we err on one side or the other. Bob? I was about to say, it's also giving us reason to feel confident in the veracity of the New Testament because the early church did not just say, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, right. No, they went out and they researched it and determined, okay, these are, what he's saying is based on facts. Yeah, no, exactly right. Good call. So what he does is then, so they get um, Barnabas from Jerusalem and they essentially say, Barnabas, check this out. And what a perfect choice to pick. Now, some people might have disagreed, because my guess is that some people probably thought Barnabas was probably a little bit played loose with the rules, because he was the son of encouragement. So he's that guy who comes in cheering all the time, woohoo, you know? And uh, so like on our team, I have me and we have Chuck. And so 
Chuck Verstetter, right? So Chuck is, we, I tease him all the time. I'm the optimist, he's the pessimist. He says, no, I'm a realist. It's that kind of thing. So I'm the one that's always coming and say, hey, here's what we could do. And Chuck's the one that says, well, let's just see. <laughs> let's just see. And uh, that's a good thing. That's actually just a, and it's key that you surround yourself with people like that. I mean, if you just surround yourself, people say, yeah, let's go. We'd, you'd be so far. Anyway, is this a field? Is this time con contemporaneous with the the problems with the Nestorians and all these other um, groups? Not yet, okay. not yet, but it's coming. I'm there in the source, so I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, not yet. That's a later development. At this point, at this point, um, and and so from here until what's my timeline say? Let me just see. Yeah, so we're at about forty three. Okay? okay, we're at about 43 A.D. From this point for the next decade, at least, it might even be two decades, it's about how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian. Can Gentiles be fully welcomed in? There, there, there are no, not Christological questions yet, or the divinity or humanity of Christ. There's not those questions yet. Um, but they're coming. They're coming. The Gnostics are the worst. John is the one, John, later in his life, in 1 John and so forth, really addresses those particular heresies, which are proto-Gnostic. The Gnostics, you know, essentially said flesh bad, spirit good, therefore you can do anything you want, sleep around, do whatever you want, this kind of thing, because the flesh doesn't matter, and your spirit is with God, and secret knowledge. And they denied the full divinity and humanity kind of, of Christ. It out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is good. So he arrives, verse 23 in chapter 11 of Acts. When Barnabas arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And that's a key line. Remain true. Just because this is great, don't be going nuts. You know, don't just do whatever pops into your head. Let's be faithful. But wow, what a blessing. That's just such a great, that's such a great tempered message. Let's be faithful to the Lord, but let's have joy. And let's find ways. Let's find ways to welcome and receive people. And then it says, verse 24, again, referring to Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So now here's, so this is what you need to know. Jerusalem is the, is the, the center of the church. It is the heart of the church. The temple is there. This church is still... 95% Jewish, right? Please remember that. All these first believers are Jewish who have simply accepted that Jesus was the Messiah in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. They are that strain of Jews. They have said, yes, that's who the Messiah was, Jewish. So it's heavily centered here. But now in this area, they say, hey, I wonder, I wonder if these Greek people would accept the truth. Or some of them may have come to him and said, tell us more about this Jesus and about the way. And all of a sudden, these Gentile believers, so this becomes the leading edge of the church. This is the cutting edge place. This is the one that's trying the new things. This is the place that makes all of these guys down here nervous. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to show itself. So like in our case, we always chuckle about this in our denomination. The comparison is, this is St. Louis, and this is the Northwest. <laughs> I mean, because seriously, we, are, we face different things in different times. 
with limited resources. And so we have to always ask questions. I mean, I was in the Midwest, and I was at a church that has six retired pastors. I'd give my left arm to have one. Well, maybe not. But I, I'd, give, I'd give my pinky to have one. So, no, I mean, I mean, really, we just don't have it. So how do you cover things, right? How do you, how do you cover things? How do you get ministry done? Anyway, that's the question. So these guys are out there saying, well, God's blessing this. Is it good? Is that okay? What's neat is they're not rebellious. They receive with joy the people that come up because they're saying, we want to do this right. This was the odd thing in our denomination. When I was back in St. Louis serving on these task force, I remember one time I was so amazed because I'm sitting in a group. There's 16 of us on the task force, and I'm the only dude on the one side, 15 to 1, on this particular topic of clergy and laity, who can do what. And I said to them, you know, I said, I said, I hope I don't even have to say this, but I mean, it's clear. In the Northwest, we would love to have a fully seminary-trained, ordained pastor in every congregation. We would love that. And they looked at me. One guy said to me, no, you don't. I mean, and I said, what? He said, well, no, we have all kinds of reports that you don't want to have pastors. You just want to use lay people, and you want to, you know, demean the pastoral office and ignore that. And I said, that's a lie. I said, it's absolutely not the case. I said, we can't do it. We, we don't, I said, we would love to have that. And to be honest, half the guys that are trained in seminary don't know what they're doing either. But, I mean, at least, they have the tra at least they have biblical grounding. And that's a great blessing. But this, this is the model. Uh, they were so blown away, and it changed things. It has changed the conversation. It has opened up win opportunities for communication. Because I said to them, that is absolutely not the case. I'm the vice president of the district. I can tell you, every church I know would love to have a pastor that can't do it, can't afford it, they're not to be had, churches are too small, too far apart, whatever it is, we love it. And they went, and finally they believed me. And they said, okay, that helps us. That's the difference, that's the thing. Antioch was saying, please help us. We want to know we're doing the right thing. And I said that too. Hey, we want to play by the rules. We want to do this faithfully. We want to do it well. But we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, we're going to do ministry. We're not going to stop doing ministry just because you don't believe us. You get the difference? Yeah. We said, no, we're going to keep doing ministry, but we're telling you what we're trying to do anyway. It was that. So now, here comes the part, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Um, great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You know that history. This is where now they're not called followers of the way, typically. From this point on, they're now called Christians. Yeah. I just noticed on this map there are two Antiochs. Yes, there are. There's a Syrian Antioch and then there's a Asia Minor Antioch. This is the Syrian Antioch that we're talking about. It's a huge, significant city. The one in the center, where is it? The center of uh, Turkey, or Asia Minor, is, is, is a meaningful town. But there were tons of cities called Antioch. Remember, it's named after Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, he was that Greek general and then emperor. He was a jerk. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah. Just a quick question. When you talked about the two um, Old Testament uh, sections that caused the Jews. Yeah, Isaiah 53. And Psalm what? Psalm 22. Okay. There are others, numerous other well, ones, too. I just too. read Psalm 22, and I didn't really get the context of that. Psalm, or Isaiah 53, I'm more familiar with. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I'll read. Well, yeah, no, Psalm 22, I mean, Isaiah 53, where most of us are very familiar with Good Friday services, it's a suffering servant. Mm -hmm. 
um, who has believed our message to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. But Psalm 22 depicts the crucifixion in unbelievably accurate terms. The very first verse. Yeah. Oh, my God, my God, why so forsaken me? It's fascinating because those words come right out of David's <laughs> mouth. And they are in the time when, when King Saul is pursuing David, and David is sure his life, he's going to lose his life. Um, it's a, a very, very down part of his time. And he's saying, God, are you with me still? Um, and what's so interesting is when you read the whole psalm, David says things David can't say. He can't. He can't say them. Um, it ha makes no sense that David says them, but it only makes sense if Jesus says them from the cross. It's very interesting. Well, I guess, I mean, part of the... I mean, I understand what Cheryl's saying about the first verse, but like verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, sworn by men and despised by the people. I mean, I guess I never thought of Jesus feeling like he was a worm. I mean... He's sin. He's forsaken by God. I see. I mean, he's despised by the people, scorned by the people. And they say he believed in God, let him save him. It's, it's the exact quote from the foot of the cross. 900 years earlier. And then get to the last verse of 22. Isn't it the last verse? They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, uh, for he has done it. Yeah, that's a great verse too. But there's one where they gamble for his clothes. Is in that one. Not a bone in him will be broken. All my joints are out of all my joints are out of place. Yeah. Seventeen and eighteen. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I, if you walk through it verse by, I could okay. do it with you sometime. That's fine. It's just Thanks. unbelievable. It's so specific. It's so specific. It describes a crucifixion victim. Yes. And Jews knew what this was about. This was a. This was because David is the author of this. This was a, about a kingship, and it made it was strange for the Jews. They didn't <coughs> like that David talked like this. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so um, so this is where we're at at this point. So they're there for a whole year speaking um, speaking uh, with the church and, and doing missionary work there in Antioch. We also have, um, let's go to Galatians 2 real quick. Again, we piece this all together from a variety of things. So in, in Galatians 1, we looked at this last week or the week before. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, stayed with him 15 days, right? Two weeks. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. That's Tarsus. So Cilicia, it's like saying I went to Oregon, even though you meant Portland. You know, that's what that means, right? Or I went to Idaho, even though you meant Pocatello. So Cilicia is the region. Um... I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So those are all those people down by Jerusalem. They didn't know me personally. They only heard this, hey, the guy that was chasing after us is now, um, is now preaching the faith that he tried to destroy, and they praised God. Then now, chapter 2, we get another piece of this. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. In response, I went in response to Revelation. So this is about the famine. There's a famine journey that takes place in which he goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes up privately. He brings Titus with him, who's not circumcised. It's a Gentile believers, not circumcised. And he brought him up there kind of as a test case to see how would they receive him. Would they receive this uncircumcised believer? Now, Timothy was circumcised, and so he was welcomed Right? Yet not even Titus, who is verse 3, 
who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. They got it. They understood it. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves, right? Slaves to the, to the law, to the Jewish restrictions of the law. Here, I'm going to make a quick side note here, and I won't get to what I wanted to get to, shocking. Um, so this is important. This is important. Because many times people ask me this, and forgive me, you've met some, many of you have heard me say this more than once. Tim Keller does a beautiful job on this, on why are some of the Old Testament laws in and some are out. Right? So why does Peter get to eat lobster now? Or, or bacon? Why is that okay? But the sexual issues remain. Those remain in place. Why? What's the difference? Here's the difference. And, and I love Keller's take on this. And actually, my a seminary prof, also Old Testament prof, shared the same perspective. But Keller just articulates it so well. He says, in the Old Testament, a huge portion... There were two things. One was how do we live together as God's holy people and how do we come into the presence of God to worship him? Those are the two big deals. <laughs> That's why he had a tabernacle, traveling tabernacle. God didn't wait to have a center for his presence in their midst until they could build the temple. They'd, have, they'd have turn blue if they held their breath. Right? They wouldn't have had it. So God, it's those two things. How do we live as his people? How do we prepare ourselves to be in worship in him? So dietary rules and, and um, things like that um, were, were cleanliness things. How do, I get, how do I get ritually clean in order to be in the presence of God? Those rules are now abrogated, completed, fulfilled in Christ. That's why the temple veil tears. There's now complete access to the Holy of Holies because Christ lives in us. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you get it? Do you get what I'm saying? So all of those, those are Paul. It's Paul stuff. So Paul is the one who says, hey, all of those rules, he's supportive of Peter in this. In fact, he's like, this is great. The Gentiles can be in because these people are as ritually unpure as it gets. This, these people, it's bad. And so they, because of what Christ has done. Now, but how do we live together as God's people? Husbands and wives, sexuality, how do we, who's in charge? How do we serve one another? All of those laws remain in place because they're relational laws. We, have all, we, have, we now do not have separation between God and man because of what's been accomplished in Christ. So anyway, that's, the, that's a, I think, a helpful explanation. 1041. Holy cow. Okay. So... <clears throat> So this is now introducing in Galatians. Now we're going up um, because we're beginning to ask the question. Verse 7, uh, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews, right? So you get that clear demarcation between the two. For God who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So what we think is happening is Paul has already, for five years, been working and sharing and spreading the gospel in this region, in Cilicia, Tarsus, and then comes to Antioch recognized as a key, key player, and by God's promise, God had said, this is what I'm calling you to do. I'll show you the hardships you're going to have to go through. And so some of it's within the church, and some of it's outside of the church. And so he and Barnabas become the great missionary advocates, and we're about ready to launch into the first missionary journey. So the first missionary journey then, oh, this is good, let's see. If I can make this work, 
Okay, good. All right. All right. So here's here's the this will this is where we'll launch into next week. Because what's going to happen is they're going to head here to Cyprus, and I, I mentioned one week. It's so interesting to me that we have no letters to the island of Cyprus. These were the first churches, missionary plants. Antioch, you could argue, was, but this really is the missionary center of the church. These people have the passion for reaching out with the gospel. And then the first stop is Cyprus, and then they head right here, not this way. It comes this way. This is Galatia. It's in this area right here. There's two Galatias. See up here? And then there's a south and a north Galatia. And the Galatia we we're talking about. And so we'll head into for a week or two into the book of Galatians. Just to look at some key issues that Paul is writing to the church. Okay. Questions? That's all in, common in modern day Turkey then? Yes. All of them. Well, Cyprus and Turkey. Yeah. Cyprus and Turkey. Okay. Let's say the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. Hey everyone, thank you so much for making it out to Oktoberfest and to for all those who helped volunteer and donate and cheer on our ministry here at Grace as we sought to raise money for our pastor's discretionary fund. Um, we just really appreciate the community that we have here. Also, uh, stick on your calendar, um, Thursday, October 31st, it is Halloween, we are having our annual trunk or treat here at Grace from 4 to 6. If you would like a trunk, please contact Christina Parker at Grace Lutheran Church, and we can make sure that you have a spot for that.